the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And uh, I think that applies at a company level, too. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company, and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. Brad Wilkins is a bit of a renaissance man when it comes to his career. Having been involved in startups, training, recruiting, and almost becoming an NBA referee, Brad has taken his experience to the world of HR. In today's episode, Brad shares how his experiences have shaped his ideas on building a brand and building rapport. Let's dive right in. Brad uh, Wilkins, welcome to the show. I have a feeling it's going to be really slow, really boring, and probably not that informative. So uh, what do you say we do this? (laughs) Sounds good. Let's rock and roll. (laughs) All right. For those who don't know you, if you don't mind, just give a a quick synopsis of who you are and uh, what you're doing these days. Yeah. So uh, I'm... I would argue the leading data intelligence company in the world, serving a large number of enterprise clients, helping them with their data governance, the catalog, the privacy. We're a unicorn just earlier this year, got a valuation a little over $2 billion. So obviously with COVID, some of the hyper growth has, has slowed slightly, but we're off to the races and experiencing exponential growth over here and uh, having a lot of fun. That sounds like fun. What's the biggest challenge that you're going through these days sans COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... COVID is a magnifier to challenges, which is as we're growing, the company was a couple hundred people not two or three years ago and has really grown at an exponential rate, as I mentioned. And so it's how do we scale and create repeatability while keeping some of the agility and the, and the engine that, that got us to where we are? So it's, mm-hmm. it's how do we keep the good from the past and, and the, the better for the future. And do you have an answer to that yet? Or is that the, the secret sauce? There's a lot, I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> if there was a secret sauce, I wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be on uh, Good Morning America, right? <laughs> so it's really core tenants of, you know, of any company, right? It's a, how do you create alignment? How do you create transparency? How do you create you know, engagement, which is the slowed HR word? And how do you drive towards business results and measure and learn and, and remeasure? It's funny, I, I saw a quote earlier this morning that I, I thought, resonates really well to the world today. It's Alvin Toffler who said, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And uh, I think that applies at a company level too, right? It's, that's, you know, it's how quickly can you make a mistake, pick up on it, learn from it, identify the pattern recognition, and then accelerate because you knew where the, the gap was from what you learned before. 
That's a fantastic quote. What was that taken out of? Like, what's the context? Of that? I have no idea. Uh, yeah. That was taken out of context. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> good. No idea where it came. Yeah. But either way, it's good. I'm gonna. That might have to make the cut in terms of how we introduce <laughs> you. That was such a good quote. I, uh, and I and I'm a big quote guy. I, I love quotes. I feel that they yeah. really kind of drive home points. You might then appreciate this. The biggest room in the world is. Now, what is the biggest room in the world? The room for self improvement. <laughs> well played. It's nice. Yeah, it's, I mean, listen, it's just so true. And I mean, again, this world we're changing. Agility is so important. These uh, quote unquote soft skills are really coming to the forefront, even in this day of technology, because part of these that skill set is being able to learn, being agile, having to change. Absolutely. So I I love that quote. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look that up. Hey, so so before we kind of dig into kind of the technical side and things that you're doing, I'd love for the audience to get a better sense for who you are as a person. I've got a, a section that I like that I call like my rapid fire questions. And uh, okay. if you're ready to rock, I want to hit you some, with some rapid fire questions. But let's go. All right. What's your favorite type of food? Ooh, already out of the gate. I got two extremes on this one. I, I, I love hole in the walls. Uh, you know, we've got a Szechuan place here that they don't even speak English. That's tremendous. My other guilty pleasure on the food side, I love tasting menus. And, and it's mm. funny because when they don't, when you don't know what's coming, like we like to go to our favorite restaurant and just say, hey, bring us eight courses. Here's how much we're willing to spend and just go have fun. Go off menu, go on menu, doesn't matter. And, uh, and just going for that ride uh, and having the adventure and lots of little bites and lots of little experiences. So it's, it's either one of those two extremes. It's find me at Applebee's in the middle. I, I love that. So are a lot of restaurants receptive to something like that? Or is this you just places well, that this, are willing to do yeah, I mean, our, our, It's actually catching on a lot more. I mean, in New York, it's been around for a while. But even in Atlanta, there's restaurants opening that are only tasting menus. And so... The place we go to called Atlas here in Atlanta, they actually just added an official tasting menu. But before that, I would email the GM and the chef and be like, hey, we're coming in. <laughs> you know, here's what we're craving. Like my wife was pregnant a year and a half ago and we're like, hey, she can't eat any of these things. And and we did a pasta tasting menu where he made all these fresh homemade pastas and raviolis. And it was just incredible. And and again, the waiters would bring them like, we're like, hey, we've never seen this, but it looks cool. So enjoy, <laughs> which uh, is always a treat. That's fantastic. And and I like to consider myself somewhat of a foodie and I've never done that. So I appreciate oh, add, add about, it. To, add it to the list. <laughs> yeah, forget about HR, everyone. We've uh, just had an opportunity. We've, we've just really yeah. enhanced the, uh, the uh, our palates today. So this is good stuff. Absolutely. In the spirit of food, what makes you forget to eat lunch? <laughs> That's unfortunately happens a little bit too often. You know, it's interesting. I actually, I added lunch 15 minutes to my calendar for the first time ever in my career, just because I, I find I have a tendency to, to forget. I find myself just running and rolling and, and not even thinking about myself, but thinking about other people all day long. And so when you're thinking about other people, it's hard to, to remember. And then all of a sudden at five o'clock, you're like, oh, my head hurts a little bit. Did I forget to eat? Oh, I forgot to eat lunch. And then you know that, hey, I better not eat now because I've got to eat dinner in two hours with my wife. And if I'm full, you know, I'll get in trouble there too. And so, so anyway, so yeah, no, I actually forget to eat lunch probably two or three days a week but i've started keeping like bags and nuts near my desk just to so i put something in there otherwise i, I end up finding myself just enjoying the work too much yeah i keep a thing of almonds at my desk and i probably choke once a week on almonds <laughs> nice yeah i'm a quick study i still haven't figured this out that i, I should stop <laughs> eating the almonds I, I got a question that i'd love to learn from you is 
something that you, you probably get a lot of requests, I'm assuming, all the time that you're just not mm-hmm. able, either whether you have time or just maybe they're just not applicable. But how do you say no to people? Oh, yeah. It's interesting. It's one thing that I've been told about myself and have self-awareness is I've kind of got two speeds, off or all the way. And when you're off or all the way, you've got to be a little more diligent with your nose. I, I try to say yes when possible. Yes brings you down the road of adventures that you wouldn't expect. But you know, sometimes even understanding the why. And sometimes it's not no, but it's about timing and sequencing. And so it's it's around understanding what are we trying to accomplish? What am I trying to accomplish? Does this, whatever the request is, match or marry up to that? And if it does, then say yes. And if it doesn't, then say no. And sometimes it's a no, not now. And sometimes it's a you know, no, thank you. And then like most people, when I get these random solicitations on LinkedIn that are out of the box, you don't even say no at all. You just don't reply and, and they waste an email on you. <laughs> yeah, I'm still to this day blown away by by some of the things that come through LinkedIn. It blows. It's gotten away. worse. It, yeah. It's gotten worse. I feel like I get like five, 10 things a day that are just like, and do they read what they're writing? They're writing like 12 paragraphs to you. And you're like, just so you know what, all. I'll tell you a little trick, something that I did to tell quickly if someone has even taken a minute to look up who I am or what I'm doing is I added my initial to my name. Ah, and yeah, I've got, I got that too. So when it goes Bradford Charles, yep. Then, uh, I either know that they didn't read it or that I'm in big trouble because they used my full name. <laughs> That's awesome. Tell me something that most people just don't know about you. Oof. Uh, you know, I'm a <laughs> pretty open book. You know, I, I think what I, I don't talk a lot about publicly is my childhood. We grew up with a lot of foster kids. So I've actually got eight brothers and sisters, five of which are adopted, two biological and then a half brother. But we generally had about 10 to 13 kids in the house for most of my life. And they'd come, some of them would stay for a week, some of them would stay for years. And that combined with two CEOs for parents was a very, very interesting upbringing. And, but it, it influenced a lot of how I approach both my life and, uh, and the appreciation of the blessings that I've been given. Because again, kids coming through foster care are generally not coming from the, the best environments. And so, whereas a lot of kids probably spent their, their childhood wishing for more or wanting this. And it's like every time a kid came that was from a, a, a different income class or a different environment, just continue to reiterate how important and blessed I was. And so I think it, it created a lot of self-appreciation for the the world that I uh, was raised up in uh, wow. with my parents. What a great experience and what amazing and selfless parents that you have. Oh, they're incredible. Yeah, they're, they're both. And they're, again, I, I guess I'm like them. They're not like me. <laughs> they're, they're the same way. You know, it's like once you had eight kids in the house, it's like, all right, well, hey, you got a call. You want to bring a ninth? Bring a ninth. We're making a big lasagna anyway. It's so, but yeah, it's just, yeah. And again, it just, there's so much you learn from just different people and different backgrounds. And what thing they, they instilled in us also was when someone arrived, they were a brother or sister. There was no, this was not my foster brother, Matt. This is your brother, Matt. And it's like, oh, great. I love my brother, Matt. Just like I love any of my brothers or any of my sisters. And I didn't have my own room for quite a long time. You moved rooms depending on if there were more women or, or men or boys or girls, I guess. So it, it created instability, but in that instability created stability because you didn't have to have the standard trots of what you're expected to have. Gosh, I, well, I guess you had to learn to be agile real young. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They prepared uh, you. you know, yeah, I mean, agile and even just self-reflection. It's, again, you've got 10 kids in the, in the house. No one's giving you over too much attention if you got straight A's or whatnot. And so you'd have to find yourself being like, all right, did I do a good enough job? 
I'm my own judge. Like, did I give it all I had? Uh, I'm my own judge. And because, <laughs> yeah. you know, again, my parents would generally spend their time with the kids that were struggling with the homework. And so, again, it, it created different perspectives of autonomy, ironically. Let's cut this short. I want your parents on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're way cooler than I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you almost made the NBA as a ref. Can you tell me about that? And then, are you still refing? Yeah, so it's 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 funny because I I actually learned a ton through my career as a referee, and so when I moved up to New York City, ironically, the fastest way to get good basketball game was to go into the pro am program, not the high school. There was a lot of politics in the high school side, and so I again, as I mentioned, I only have kind of two speeds off and, and all the way, and so it really was built in more as a Saturday hobby. And so I I got in the pro am program. There were a number of NBA referees or upcoming NBA referees. And to this day, I mean, there's just, I could, we could have a whole podcast on all the different things I learned about HR as a referee. There's so much parallel, you managing gray, managing personalities, making decisions with authority, but also you, you've got to stir humility. I mean, it's just, uh, it was an incredible journey. I, I got pretty close retrospectively now that I've got a wife and, and family, that's a tough lifestyle. I wouldn't, yeah. I'm not sure it would have been the right one for me necessarily, but uh, I've got some friends that are still in the league and it was a great experience. And I do ref high school varsity and kind of high level AAU in the summer, although with COVID to your point earlier, we're, we're a sandbox for the year. So we'll see how that all plays out, but it's fun to still get a little bit of exercise with some mental stimulation along the way. Now, and then what attracted you to that? It's, it's such a difficult thing to do and then to have to deal with so much contention. Um, yeah, you know, and, uh, and it's funny because you know it's between HR and it, it's got you know this different piece there. But um, it's something I picked up in college uh, doing intramurals, just kind of you know Sundays, and uh, you know I just really enjoyed the. You know, I'm a huge basketball guy, always have been, and so it was just something that that I continued down the, the track of. And even if I look at when I played sports as a kid, I was the catcher in baseball. I was the goalie in soccer. I was the, the guy who defended the best player in the team in basketball. And so I think I've always enjoyed the authority and the, the, this kind of the pressure, if you will, that comes with having to make the tough decision mm-hmm. in real time. And I think I see that in my professional career. But even as a referee, you're making hundreds of decisions every game and processing information and making judgment calls. And again, you know, I think about a soccer goalie or a catcher, the same kind of choreography is required. And so I think that was an organic next step for me. That's so interesting. So how, how do you respond, though, to people when they ask what you do? <laughs> so not now here. And if, if we're at a party, that's why my wife gets upset at me for this. But I generally just say I, I'm in HR and, uh, and let them run away. Because most people, they think of HR is, you know, let's have a party or let's fire somebody or let's give them a promotion to try to explain to them the nuance of our craft and all the different components of how we're you know, helping to drive business results. 99 out of 100 people don't necessarily understand that, which is yeah. fine because, uh, <laughs> frankly, I, I love to talk about the craft, but I don't necessarily like to explain the craft to, mm-hmm. to the layman. So it's uh, it's fine to be quiet and at the party and, and just sit and watch and observe people. <laughs> That's interesting. I, for some reason, though, I don't see you uh, just sitting around, though. I can't. Don't know if I can picture that. Um, (laughs) At the party on the wallflower, I like to listen and observe and and watch human interaction. Again, if they get me on a topic, I'll go storytelling mode. But but I'm actually relatively quiet outside of work. Work is my sweet spot and where I uh, feel most comfortable. Interesting. So are, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm actually more of an introvert. I'm much more of a kind of a data-oriented introvert who's acquired some extroversion skills along my career. And and again, it's it's because the extroversion is really about confidence and fearlessness, right? It's yeah. am I confident putting myself out there and know that if I get into a pickle or if I don't know what I'm doing, can I find my way out of it? And and that's 
that's why probably at work where I can, to relative degrees, continue to try to master my craft. I'm probably more comfortable than in a social situation where there are less actual right and wrong answers to some extent. So it's interesting in kind of doing some homework on you and talking to some people to prepare for today's conversation. You were referred by one person as being like a renaissance style, a chief human resource or chief people. I forgot exactly what the wording was. Okay. I, found that, I found that to be so interesting. I've never heard that before. Why would someone refer to you in that manner? What do you think? <laughs> I haven't heard that either, actually. But I think maybe it's just unlike a lot of my peers who were chief people officers, they came up through one particular track, the classic HR generalist employee relations, or, or maybe through recruiting or, or occasionally through one a compensation or something like that. Whereas because I began my career in more of a startup environment, I've kind of had to de- develop relative versions of mastery of all of the crafts. And so when I'm talking to my head of talent management, I'm going as deep in the weeds as, as he can. And the same if I'm talking to a comp person or a learning person, because I've been a trainer, I've been a recruiter, I've been a, an OD specialist, I've built comp models myself. So I've actually done versus just supervised. And, and that's possibly where that's coming from is I take pride in not only from the HR craft, but even the business that I'm in, trying to understand and, and know if not as much, possibly more than the people that I'm interacting with, right? So if I'm working with a particular department in my company, it's what are all of our competitors doing in that department? What's the latest trend in in different industries? And just trying to read and absorb and ingest all this information and then apply it, which kind of accelerates that pattern recognition we talked about earlier. Wow, that's awesome. It made me think is, so so you've got a good handle on this. You're covering every I don't know if it's every, but most parts of (laughs) of HR, like you've got your hands have been dirty and you really understand it. And from doing the show and talking to lots of other of your peers, the key that they most that I've seen is consistent in terms of the success of the the chief people officer, CHRO, whatever it is you want to be referred to, is to be able to understand the business the underlying business itself and to be able to kind of speak business with the C-suite that you're interacting with. But how often, if at all, in your experience, does the business understand HR? <laughs> so it, you're, you're setting a softball up for me because one of my, my most recent talking points is actually that there's a bad reputation for HR and not understanding that there's some self-preserved, some legacy. But because of that, the business, and it's funny, I was just talking to uh, someone in, uh, in another company earlier today who's in their recruiting arm. And most recruiters assume the manager actually knows what they're looking for. The manager generally knows what they had in front of them before or what they've had in front of them at a different company. And so it's kind of the old Henry Ford quote, speaking of quotes, if you ask them what they wanted, they'd say faster horses. Oh, yeah. uh, and so th- I think the same thing with uh, with HR, like I said earlier, they think you can give a raise or a promotion, but the reality is there's complex integrated programs and solutions that an HR practitioner can, can build that ideally business would understand, but they're not necessarily thinking. They're thinking more linearly. So they'll say, I want to give somebody a raise or I want to give someone a promotion, but not understand all the residual effects of that or the sustainability or the scalability or the repeatability. 
For instance, we have something that I, I've done actually at my last two companies called CLEAR, which is an automatic career progression program, uh, stands for CLEAR Career Path, Learning Objectives, Expectations, Accountabilities, and Rewards. And the idea is that if you're in a certain role, so for instance, we just rolled it on the inside sales team here. And so your next step from BDR to senior BDR, that's the next step in your career. And here's the learning objectives you need to hit, the expectations, some of the more softer pieces, the accountabilities, the hard metrics that you're going to do. And if you hit those learning objectives, expectations, and accountabilities, then you automatically are promoted, and here's the reward. So you'll get a raise from this to that. And you are able to justify that by building the financial model and the ROI model in advance that can go to finance and say, hey, if I had someone who had these competencies and could deliver this and this, wouldn't we pay them this much on the open market? And what a lot of companies do is they wait for the manager to say, hey, we should promote someone. They start them in process. They start retro trying to fit all the numbers. And it's like, by the time you've done it, you've already lost the employee versus get the pre-buy-in, build the pre-model. And then not only is it great for the business to be able to run in a much more integrated, that's an integrated program, right? There's some learning involved, there's comp involved, there's an OD involved from an org design standpoint. There's finance involved. So all these integrated things that a manager would never, not never now, but most likely is not going to come to me and be like, I need an integrated program that incorporates training and compensation and organizational design and is validated by a financial model. Like That's not what they're going to ask for because that's not what they do all day. And so they need to know their craft and I need to know mine. That's kind of the, the, the general insight I have when I talk about the business thinking they, they know what HR does or can do. And uh, our job is to continue to exceed their expectations and, and surprise and delight them. Well, I think that answer was like a twofold answer because it, <laughs> you just, you answered why you're considered a Renaissance style chief people officer. So there you, <laughs> I guess so, so there you go, yeah, whether yeah. you were uh, conscious of that or not. And is that something that you implement immediately when you go to an organization? Um, you know, I've, I've been doing it faster. I, I, I built it two companies ago to solve a very particular problem in our sales organization. I ended up scaling it across our engineering, our solution architecture group. At my last company, uh, Ultrasource, we put it into our operations department actually first before sales. Uh, again, similar issues of how do we build career tracks and, and how do we create acceleration there. And then again, here, in my first month, ironically, there was a new head of the inside sales group who was very keen on building out a more formalized career program. And I was like, hey, I've done this before. Let's do it again. So it's not copy and paste. It's the program has its own unique flavor and character at each company. But it's something that is very much aligned to the way that I think about HR and the, the way, especially, you know, if you have a role like that with a millennial, they're not going to wait five years to get promoted in an inside sales role. So how do you put the accountability back on them? to say, hey, here's how you're going to do it. And if you succeed, wonderful. And if you fail, well, you knew what you needed to do versus a lot of places they promote someone and it's like, oh, well, they got promoted because their boss liked them. And it's very, this mystery meat of how you got promoted by kind of having that transparency. We call it open, open, direct, and kind here is kind of our one of our core values. And so it, it fit really well into that of, hey, everyone, if someone's promoted or if someone's in a certain role, you know exactly what they did. And, Huh. So we're so, working on building similar things across the rest of the company. So so you've made it transparent. You've also made it very quantifiable. Yes. And, and you've also taken out, so instead of somebody getting promoted either by via Peter Principle, where they've been there long yep. enough, and eventually you, you eliminate <laughs> that. But then you also eliminate any kind of uh, time parameter too, right? So you yep. don't have to necessarily be in a position managing people for at least two and a half years. Like yours yeah. is strictly... 
goal focused. Like if you yeah, well, so generally those those goals will have a little time box. They've either been quarterly or biannually generally, so they're short windows, right? So you can have short sprints towards these achievable goals. And so yeah, so there's a little bit of time boxing to them. Although again, I've put it in place in other pieces where if you hit certain milestones, like again in, in a, a different part of sales organization, it might be around if you clear this much in quota, that automatically triggers you, no matter what time of the year it is or whatnot like that. So there's different flavors of it, but it's this idea of really, we had like when we did it on the engineering side a couple of companies ago, we actually allowed people to double jump. And so they could actually jump from like an engineer one to an engineer three to an engineer to a senior engineer one. And we had one guy who was just, he clearly was spending weekends studying and learning and he was just knocking it out of the park. And we had other people that moved at them, you know, they would get a promotion, they would miss a quarter, they'd get another promotion. And so again, it, it also kind of tailors to where everyone is in their career in terms of the speed that they want to get there and then the inputs that they want to put to be able to get there as well. Interesting. Again, this is go at your own speed, but you've laid out, you've roadmapped how someone can get to where it is that they want to go. Yep. And then, like I said earlier, the, the, the latter part of that is building the business case that when they get there, it's already validated and justified. And so you've already cleared the role for them because you're saying, hey, isn't this worth this? And the ROI model matches it. Because without that last piece, it's really hard. Again, you could do it, but it wouldn't make as much sense. Because again, you and they, it works best in roles where there's theoretically infinite greenfield or white space to go after it doesn't work as well in necessarily if you couldn't have an automatic management track as easily because you would need x number of employees etc now the way you could theoretically build it with a management track is say hey if we have this many employees exceeding expectations that get promoted in this new group then we would need a manager for this new group and that's like if you get your team there then that's how that's going to happen so there's ways to do it it's not quite as turnkey as an operations role or, or an engineering track or a customer success organization or something like that. Well, I mean, it's, I, I love that. And I think that's something, well, is that something that is easy to implement? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts. And, yeah, uh, yeah. E- easy is relative, right? I, I think point. people get confused with uncomfortable and easy, right? It just things can be uncomfortable, but still be easy. And, and so it's, there it takes some tough questions, some, some you know, number crunching, some really double clicking and being thoughtful to making sure that the metrics are reasonable, yet enough of a stretch that they're distinguishable. So you're not just sending people down the slide or up the ladder at a hyperspeed. But yeah, at the end of the day, there's nothing about any of the individual chunks of that or the micro chunks of that are particularly difficult. It's just, it's uncomfortable because it's different, right? And convincing managers and convincing finance and helping everyone to understand. And even in the employees be like, hey, yeah, there's no catch here. We are being as clear, no pun intended, as we say we are, right? So, so again, those things are uncomfortable. They're not hard. You just, I guess, have to, I guess, build or develop uh, a a rapport with all the different people to get the buy-in to roll this out. Absolutely. Yeah. Rapport. And again, rapport is both the human element, which obviously during a COVID environment is a little more challenging. And then I'll be, again, establishing value, right? It's when you establish value, then uh, then people try to come to you and try to engage with you. And and that also accelerates some rapport sometimes. Yep. I agree with that. So if you could boil down all these successes that you've had to two or three things, what would you say they are? And then I've got a follow-up question to that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So two or three things. I, th- I think there's obviously a lot of things, obviously, that make someone successful. What I can say in my career, the three things that I think I probably would, would trigger to is effort, 
learning kind of the earlier conversation and and how I define happiness. And if I unpack those a little bit, as I mentioned, because of my childhood, no one ever said stop here to get an A, right? It's and, and a lot of people coming out of school today like, oh, what do I need to do to get an A? And that's where they stop. So they, they could have been capable of doing quadruple what they actually achieved, but they stopped because someone told them that was good enough. And throughout most of my life, no one actually had that barometer. So I would measure some of my output or my inputs based on how much effort did I give it everything I had. And by the way, there's days I didn't, and I didn't do everything I had, so I didn't deserve as much success. There's times I've, I've won awards and, and done things that I felt like, oh, that's nice, but I could have done better. And there's times that I failed miserably at something, and I, and I'm like, I could not have done anything differently there. I gave it everything I had, and so that's as much. Uh, or more of a success, frankly, than some of the, the things that I had more mm. bandwidth to give. To the other pieces, like this idea of learning, right? And so I always joke that experiences is just you've made more mistakes and you've you know indexed more pattern recognition. And so by putting yourself in an environment where I was just talking to someone earlier today about this concept of fearlessness, right? Where you can take risks, where you can go out on a limb, where you can know it's okay to fall down and it's okay to make the same mistake once, twice, okay? Are you optimizing? Are you iterating? Are you using data? I learned that better probably from referees who a lot of people don't know, the NBA referees, they watch every game they do after it's over and they critique every single play that they called or, or didn't call. They watch their positioning, the way they present their numbers. I mean, the amount of intense scrutiny. And so I've actually applied a lot of those principles to HR. So if I'm giving a training, I'll go watch the video and I'll watch my body language. I'll watch, hey, was there a more condensed way to say this? Was there a more clear way to say this? What's the body language of the people who I'm presenting to, et cetera? And so I think just a continuous learning. Uh, and again, that's reading, that's listening to podcasts. When I talk to entry-level people, I always am surprised how many of them just go home and watch Netflix or most yeah. of the time in the world, like, they watch sports. I'm like, you're, re- you're driving the car and you're listening to music. Now, my, when I used to commute, obviously, yeah, you know, in the morning, it was a book on tape or a podcast. The Way Home was sports radio or a great podcast like this one where I could just relax. So again, I'm not saying every minute of every day has to be learning, but there's so much wasted time that people are spent mm-hmm. not absorbing and then finding the pattern recognition around there. And then the third piece is, again, and this I think goes back to the childhood, it's, it's funny, maybe that became the theme of today's podcast, <laughs> but with so many different people entering my life, leaving my life, entering my life, you know, one thing I found is, is generally a survival mechanism, frankly, uh, it was just that I measure my happiness by how I treat other people and what I do for them. Mm. And because I have complete control over it. Whereas if I measure my happiness, as most people do, on what people do for them or how people treat them, right? You don't have control. You have influence, but not control. Whereas if I treat you poorly or I don't give you the enablement that I could potentially give you if I'd spent a little more time, well, tomorrow I can fix that. I have complete control. I can go apologize. I can try to do better tomorrow. Whereas if you treat me like crap, I can't really do anything other than try to influence you, but it's not within my control. And so that kind of fulcrum of true control over my life because I'm measuring happiness on how I treat other people. And then the benefit, of course, is people like people who help them. And so I've been very blessed to have lots of relationships from that. There's the the very controversial Mother Teresa quote of, is she the most selfish woman who ever lived? Because she loved helping people. And that's what she got to do all the time. And so I, I, I kind of took that and spun it up a little bit on my own. But and that's again in HR, ninety-eight percent of what I do is helping people all day. And occasionally, it's it's letting someone go. But even those, I'd argue, try 
99 out of 100 of those, I end up saying, this is actually better for the person, to your yeah. point, that Peter principled or, or whatever it may be. And so I, I found you know, a, a, a place to harness my addiction to helping people and also be well rewarded for it. That is such a great way of phrasing it. Every one of those answers, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. What I want to talk about is your brand. I think you've done such a great job with your brand. So I, I don't know if that's something you've consciously done. You seem to be very reflective, very thoughtful. So I'm assuming this is by design. And if so, I'd love to get your perspective of what is your brand. It's something that I, I really didn't think about for the first part of my career. And ironically, when I moved from New York down to Atlanta, and I didn't know anyone, and I didn't have any connections, and I was starting the normal job search process and going to dark holes of applicant tracking systems and realizing, well, wow, this is really a pain in the butt uh, to go look for a job. And so as soon as I got that job, I made a very conscious decision to focus on my brand so I wouldn't have to go look for a job ever again, and, and I would find find my way there. And so it's probably, again, I, I've never heard it phrased as a renaissance. And I'm not sure I'm fully there, but I, I buy a part of it. I, I think it's just this idea of the questioning why, challenging status quo. One of the, the pet peeves I have, and anyone on my team will tell you, is if, why do we do something? And so that's because that's how we've always done it, or it's a best practice. Well, it's best practice where, for what? And is that the same use case that we have? And so I think it's a little bit of that. No surprise, I'm sure there's a little bit of just kind of high energy. I think the, the last piece that here in Atlanta, at least when I go to these CHRO conferences and meetings, you know, but at, at a public company where I was before as the chief people officer, you know, I generally was 15 to, to 20 years younger than anyone else in the room. And so I think there's probably a little bit of that in my brand. So what I have been conscious about is putting myself in positions to be branded, but not necessarily crafting anything other than being authentic to myself for better or worse. <laughs> and, and there are people who are even like, that's not an HR person. That's most people, if they didn't know that I was HR, they would never probably guess that I'm in HR, which is both a compliment and an insult, I guess. But I think it's that. It's putting yourself in position to be branded, right? Whether it be the awards or the articles that have been written or to your point earlier about saying yes, right? If uh, Talent Management Magazine reached out to me and said, hey, can you write an article? It'd be easier for me to say I'm really busy or it's harder to say, yes, I'll do it because I'm really busy. But it's doing that and, and putting myself in opportunities to be branded mm -hmm. and then being authentic and then again, finding that uh, there are people who will like that and there are people who won't. But generally, it's hard to be kind of neutral to, to my personality probably. Yeah. So most people do a really poor job on the branding side. I, I mean, I guess, mm -hmm. do you agree or disagree? Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and again, I think it goes back to what we were kind of talking about earlier. It's to put a brand, it's almost the same as putting a goal, right? Most people don't do goals because they could fail. They literally are so afraid of fail that they don't want to put themselves in a position to be successful. And so the same thing too, you know, if I talk to friends who send me their resumes and they're like this catch-all of everything and nothing, and I'm like, but what are you? Who are you? What's going to be unique about you? And I call it the politician, right? When you're kind of everything to everyone. And it's like, I see it as a... It's both consciousness, uh, again, there's tons of materials, over. there's no reason not to understand how to build a brand, how to use LinkedIn, how to use social, et cetera. And there are people who do it, by the way, way better than I do. They're, they're writing content constantly. So so that's not really the, the area that I focus on when it comes to brand. But again, if, if you put yourself out there as something, 
there are going to be people who don't like that. And I think that's that fear is what holds a lot of people back from putting out their authentic self that might be right for some people and might not be for others. This is a bit of a dangerous analogy, like online dating. It's like if you you know, put this generic profile out there, then no one's going to really click on it. Whereas if you're like, here's exclusively who I am. And by the way, my shirt, my special someone is, is going to find me wonderful. Like, cause I put my authentic self. And I think it's the same thing with your corporate brand. If people can't not like you, then they can't like you. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. So there was a guy, uh, a guy by the name of Steve Sims. I, I, I love this guy. He wrote a, uh, a book called Blue Fishing. And it's just, it's about a lot of, he hates the word authenticity, but I mean, he screams it, to be honest with you. But he had a, a saying I loved. He, he says uh, in the book, he says, be easy to understand and, and, be, and make it impossible to be misunderstood. And I think that really kind of speaks <laughs> yeah. to what you're saying there. about Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And again, to, your, like, to, the, to full circle, it is if someone can understand you and not like it or not think, again, there, there's, Lord knows, I mean, obviously there's lots of people who I've interviewed within the years for roles that have not thought that I was a good fit for an HR job for whatever reason. And that's okay, right? Yeah. Uh, because in doing so, I found places like Nultasaurus and AdCap, and I could go back that I was a good fit for or am hopefully still a good fit for. <laughs> so yes, I think that's important. It's again, the, the ability to fail is critical if you're going to be successful. That's great. I, I wholeheartedly agree. So what are what can you recommend that people do today, right now, to move forward with improving their personal brands. And, 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 and also, actually, before that, maybe, if, can you address why that's so important? Because it is important, and it's something that's kind of in vogue these days, that's becoming a, more of a hotter topic, but yet so many people do it so poorly. So if you could, I guess, address why it's important, and then maybe a couple things that they could start doing immediately to get themselves yeah. Well, so why is a loaded, right? I mean, again, if you're at a point of your career where like you're not, you're not job searching and you're not trying to influence and you're you're just okay, kind of an old, then you don't need it, right? Although to your earlier point, the world is moving and changing so quickly that unfortunately the idea of getting the 30-year watch is uh, a little bit passe. And so I don't know if anyone, especially in the midst of COVID, et cetera, is really comfortable anymore. And so you've, you've got to be able to put yourself out there in that regard. But it's, it's not only for job searching, it's internal credibility, it's customer credibility, right? When people go and look up my boss or they see me and, and one of our our keys, right? And so it's like, oh, wow, well, these are the people that you've got inside the organization that are just working in the HR field. Like, wow, that's, that makes sense. That's the use case that I'd, I'd want to think about as well. So I, there's a lot of application for brand. This is very cliche as well, but the, I think the, the biggest thing is just to start, right? Like, again, if you, <laughs> as simple as that is, right? It's like, have you, LinkedIn's got all these features, right? Do you have media on LinkedIn? So add one picture, add one article, comment one place, right? Just, it's just beginning, right? Yep. And, uh, and I think it's as simple as that, right? It's, yes, you want to have a plan. Do you want to set goals and milestones? Like, hey, I'm going to have X pieces of content developed, or I want, however, I'm going to approach my brand, or I want to have X number of speaking engagements, right? Like, of course, setting goals and having metrics helps you to, like anything, you say, I'm going to lose weight versus I'm going to lose 20 pounds. You'll lose 20 pounds, but you won't lose weight because it's like I can measure how I'm doing. And so the same thing, too. It's easy to attain, not heavy lifts. And yeah, it's, 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 it's not much harder than starting. Before you know it, you look and you're like, oh, wow, I've got all this stuff. Like if I had written a list of all the stuff, all the speaking engagements and like, I'm like, oh, I need to do all of this stuff now, I'd be overwhelming and almost crippling. Whereas well, I'm like, hey, I'm going to try to get a speaking engagement. 
well, I can do that. It's easy. Speaking of that, I mean, you've done, you've had a, a, a treasure trove of accomplishments and engagements and awards and things. Any of them mean more to you than any of the others? And, and if so, why? Not particularly. <laughs> that sounds bad. Yeah, I think the ones that, that probably I smile the most about, one of getting back to like my, my happiness metric is where other people have gotten awards. That when I watch mm. someone who started as an intern with me going and getting an award somewhere, that's cooler to me than any of my awards. If I think about when, like at AdCap, two times we were named the number one best overall place to work in Atlanta. And like, that's a team effort. That's not just HR. That's HR can, can set that up. But like, those ones mean more to me. And by the way, like the first time we won that, I remember walking on stage and being like, cool, this is great. We still have a lot of work to do. And back to this idea of like not setting my, like they said I was the best in Atlanta, whatever the heck that means, which means I was, but ironically, probably the best branded in Atlanta is what that really meant. <laughs> and it's like, okay, cool. But if you're saying I'm done, right? And I slept and that's probably how we won the second year in a row. And, and so that to me, having the CEO and the president and all the, the team really engaged there. And I just think about the celebrations and like, I remember I was dating my wife, who was obviously not my wife when I was dating her, when that happened. And she heard me offer someone a job once and I said, hey, welcome to the AdCap family. And she gave me a really kind of dirty look and said, it's a job, not a family. And the best compliment she ever gave me around my work was we went to the holiday party that year. And as we're walking out of the holiday party, she turns to me and says, Brad, that's one big, crazy family. And I'm like, yes, yes. And it's just, and you know, it's funny. Uh, some who was it, uh, Airbnb or one of those that just came out and basically kind of questioned the use of family because you you don't fire family members. Although I certainly know uh, with COVID, some families that have fired some people within that. <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit cliche, but the, the spirit of that idea that people are, are together and, and have each other's back through thick and thin and uh, trust each other implicitly, again, especially at a smaller scale being able to, to help to craft and create that environment and then be recognized for it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and congrats on all of those things, <laughs> all <laughs> of you. those awards. So we're kind of running tight on time. I got like one or two more questions for you. And, and I think this one is an important one that every, a lot of people could benefit from. And that's what advice would you have for someone who is in HR right now and they're trying to earn that magical seat at the table? What do you tell them? <laughs> so whenever I hear that one, my first reply is always, don't ask for a seat at the table, but go host a dinner party and they'll come to your place. Mm. And then it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, right? When you're adding true both adding and demonstrating. So that means memorializing, using numbers and quantifiable as well as qualitative information to demonstrate that you're adding business value. Then what I found, and again, maybe I'm really lucky that I've just been at great companies that believe in the craft, but I, I think it's a little bit of both. Then they come to you and they come to you when they want to solve a business problem. The t-shirts that I had at my last company said, we're solving business problems with people solutions. And so I, I, when you think about it in that way, I, I think that's there. And I'll, I'll give you one for a, Clean example, engagement surveys, right? And this is kind of a classic hot button topic. And it's most HR professionals that I know end up making the engagement survey their metric of success. But then when I ask them why, and so oh, an engaged employee you know, produces 400% more than one who's not. And I said, great, then why aren't we using that metric? Right. If, for instance, an engaged employee, we say, produces more at a higher quality, stays longer and refers more quality people who produce more and, and at a higher quality and stay longer, then why are those our engagement metrics? Why are we asking a survey? Now, the survey is great 
as a directional tool. Hey, where are we coming up short? What do we need to continue doing? But without the extra correlation to say, this engaged employee is producing more or staying longer, or there's some sort of predictive value in it, just the survey itself means that, oh, I raised the ENPS by 22%. It's like, wonderful. And what were the business <laughs> results? Right? Or same thing with like any of these selection tools. I love selection tools. I think they're getting different data points is really valuable. But again, when your success metric of the selection tool is hiring versus, let's say, in an ops role, right, producing X number of widgets. Or I was interviewing someone once who had a, a large retail uh, footprint and they were hiring store managers and they created this cool assessment they said and I said okay great what was it that uh, you did to measure success and they were like well we we hired great people I was like but what were their goals in their first 90 days and oh they had KPIs around turning product and this and that and I was like great did you ever correlate that with your assessment and just blank faces and un- unfortunately that's more the norm than the than the inlier to or the outlier rather to uh, to have kind of that level of lack of responsiveness. And so that's the piece, continuing to push things down the value chain closer to the alignment of the business results versus just sitting there and saying, hey, this is how HR measures classic attrition metrics. But like there's regrettable and non-regrettable attrition. And you know, and at what point did you take that risk in assessment? Because everyone's non-regrettable if you give them the last minutes ago. Or were they, oh no, we, well, that's, that's fine to lose that person. Whereas if you correlate that back to your talent review or whatever program you ran to map that, and then you, you know, use that as your, your predictive piece or what are the underlying causes of attrition and, and are there things that we can actually change and drive changes versus be reactive? Um, so, so that's a are, lot. But yeah, <laughs> so are, are you saying it's, hey, it's number one, let's build some rapport with the people that are the big decision makers to, like you said, invite them to the table. Uh, and then understanding once you've built that rapport, understanding what is important, I guess, to them, and then being able to measure that, build something that you can get to quantify and, and measure that results and then share that with them? Is that? Yeah, I mean, again, the, you know, rapport is, again, it's both underrated and overrated, right? Generally, if you try to build rapport without value, right, then it's, and it's yeah. built on a foundation of rapport, right? And, and again, yes, can, as we're especially in this kind of world of, of wanting to cut through unconscious biases or the, the new buzzword is conscious inclusion, right? Uh, you know, again, that actually gets a little dangerous, right? It's like, I might actually not get along with somebody, but we might be tremendous business partners, right? And so I, so that's where rapport can get a little dangerous, especially in today's world. But to your point, it's, are you having a, an open dialogue? Are your business objectives aligned, right? If my objective is an engagement survey and theirs is to increase their revenue, increase their profitability or increase their ARR or whatever it may be, like where's the connective tissue between those two goals? And if there isn't one, then they're going to see me as a nuance, a, nu- a nuance, a nuisance coming to the table. Whereas if I have some of the, you mentioned earlier, the secret sauce, if you will, to helping them achieve, improve their profit margins because they don't have to churn on retention and then they don't, the cost of hiring or the cost of ramping someone up or whatever it may be. Well, if they can retain those top performers longer, well, that's a business value that aligns to their business metric. And they're going to come to me and be like, hey, how can we do this? Versus me knock, hey, can I come to the meeting? Right. And, and again, sometimes you have to invite yourself to the meeting so you can learn their business, stay quiet, learn what they're talking about, where their business problems are, find where your allies are in the organization. Again, every company has people who believe in HR, there's people who don't believe in HR, and there's the middle. Right. And, and so finding the ones that believe in what you're doing and uh, will be you know, guinea pigs, if you will, or, or will be good 
co-collaborators in the beginning, having success with them, telling the story and giving them the tools to tell the story back to branding being an internal thing. Then that middle group ends up popping on and saying, hey, let's jump on the, the wagon and do some of the same things. And then all of a sudden, those people who may not have believed or understood the value of HR, they become the outliers. And 99% of the time, they end up eventually coming over. They're, they're slower adopters. And so instead of trying to boil the ocean and, and get full adoption of a program or a philosophy across the entire organization, find where your early adopters are, like any product, right? And, and yeah. go and, and zero in there. And uh, again, that generally works, as at least as uh, so far in my career. Good. Thank you. And thank you for cleaning up my understanding of that. That was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Brad, uh, I got to tell you, great conversation. This is uh, one that I'll probably listen to two or three times. And I'm going to recommend that everybody else that's listening do the same. We covered a lot of ground today. A lot. Absolutely. Uh, you gave yeah. us some golden <laughs> nuggets. I appreciate this. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your endless energy and endless insights. And uh, I'd like to thank you for uh, making today happen. Thank you. No, absolutely, Adam. It was a pleasure. And like I said, there, there was no way we were getting this in 30 minutes or less. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. It did that. Yeah. <laughs> Great point, my friend. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise. Network Wise.